have a copy of the scriptures, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews. And I'm going to begin reading in uh, chapter 5. And I want to read through uh, chapter 6 and verse 9. We're to pick up the reading in chapter 5 and verse 12, a text we have looked at some weeks ago. He has been speaking to them about uh, Christ as a high priest and uh, given some attention to the matter that Christ is a high priest after the order of a man named Melchizedek, and we read about him in Genesis 14. But especially relevant to this text is what you find in Psalm 110. Now, uh, that reference apparently he, he feared would be perplexing to them, and it would prove itself difficult to explain, not because it's necessarily all that hard uh, to unpack from the scriptures, but due to a certain dullness of hearing in verse 11. And then he says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God and have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness where he is a babe or baby. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection or maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For because it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted of the good word of God and of the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, now picking up again the word, it is impossible, for it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receive, cultivate, cultivated, receive blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you, yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do pray that you would give to us a great help in hearing and in understanding. In we read in your word that it is powerful, more powerful than a two-edged sword, and that it pierces to the divisions of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. And Father, we do pray for that precision, that cutting precision in understanding and in applying to our own soul 
as well as to others, the truth of your word. We ask this help and we ask this mercy in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It would be interesting to do a survey this morning and to ask how many of you who are regular uh, members and attenders of this congregation came to your mind when I first announced that I was going to be preaching through the book of Hebrews. And we are coming on to some 40 messages into the book of Hebrews at this time. Uh, I think for some of you, you'd say, I'm, I'm really anxious to hear about the Lord Jesus. I want to hear about how he is better and how we need to fix our eyes upon him. So I'm thankful that we are going to be uh, in the book of Hebrews. But I imagine that there's more than one who said, what are you going to do when you come to chapter 6? Because few, if any, portions of scripture have come with greater scrutiny or caused more confusion or concern among God's people than the words that I have just read in your hearing. It's a text that I think is open to two types of abuse. And one of them is to simply ignore it. And that is to say, well, because I hold to a doctrine that says once saved, always saved, it doesn't have anything to do with me. I don't need to pay any attention to it. I don't know who they're talking about. Certainly couldn't be talking about me. And so you kind of hurry past it. But the other is to have this text bring to us a kind of despair and hopelessness and almost a doom and gloom that this is painting for us what our future is going to be. Obviously, I'm a hypocrite. And this is the text that's going to expose me. And because this text exists in the word of God, I can have no certainty. I can have no assurance. I can never really enjoy my salvation. I'm not really able to sing a hymn like blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Lest I keep condemnation upon me. And I can't enjoy the good gift of God because this text tells me that it might be taken away. Now for others... This text produces a certain amount of fear and anxiety, perhaps not for yourself, but because you wonder how it applies to a loved one, because you know somebody that seems to be described here. To use the language of Bunyan's man in the iron cage, I was once a fair and flourishing pilgrim like you. What about that person who taught Sunday school, who preached? What about that person who witnessed to me? What about that one who read their Bible and marked it up and prayed and was devoted to the church? What about my friend, my spouse, my parent, my son, my daughter, who once professed faith and has not only backslidden but has rejected that faith, turned from that profession? And the question comes, are they simply doomed? Should I pray for them? Should I long for them? Should I expect them to return? Or does this text close a door that no man can open? Do I face the future with a sense of their impending judgment and certain doom? I don't know where you stand. I do know where some of you stand in regard to these things. Now, I trust in the days ahead, we will be given grace both to hear and to embrace and to understand accurately and clearly what the Spirit is saying 
to this congregation 2,000 years ago and what he is saying to every congregation since then and what the Lord is saying to us through this and through other what we would call warning passages in the word of God. Now, I I don't mean to disappoint anyone in saying that what I'm going to do today is I'm going to give a lengthy introduction, a six-point lengthy introduction. Uh, Don't worry, they're not like huge long points, but I do, I think it's necessary for us to hang this upon a biblical foundation and framework. We can't come to this text in isolation from the rest of the word of God. And so this was originally my first point until this morning uh, and in my final preparation I realized I had to rework the material and I needed to add a little bit more and and so uh, God willing we'll come back next week and I I had gone further in my preparation uh, than what I am bringing here uh, today some of that may find its way into this message but my first point was intended to be an overview of the essential issues And again, I think we're not going to get any further than that, but there are six things that we need to consider under this heading. And so whenever someone is trying to interpret a text of Scripture, you're doing it, I'm doing it, you're doing it in your private study, you're doing it for a Bible study, you're going to teach, you're going to preach, whatever it is that you're going to do, it is extremely important that you interpret a text of Scripture, first of all, in its original context. It's part of the reason I started my reading in chapter 5. Chapter 5 is not irrelevant to this discussion. It's what began it. It was his concern that the dullness of hearing and the immaturity among some, their inability to wrestle with and comprehend some deeper things of the word of God might not simply be a blameworthy lack of care for their soul, but it might indicate something deeper. Okay? So you need to interpret a text in its original context, uh, and you need to consider what's said before, and you need to consider what's said after. That's why I read verse 9. I didn't stop my reading at verse 8, okay? And so again, I'm saying you, you can't read all of that warning without reading the words, but brethren or beloved, we are persuaded of better things concerning you. It would be it would be um, it would not be wise to interpret. It's not the word I was looking for, but it would not be wise to interpret the scriptures in that way. It's also crucial that we not only interpret a passage of scripture, particularly a difficult passage of scripture, in light of what comes before and after it, but also that we consider the entire context of scripture, what the theologians refer to as the universe of discourse. That's probably an older theological term, but that's what they're getting at. And there is also an interpretive principle that you'll sometimes come across by theologians. It's called the analogy of faith. So you may be reading a book and they refer to the analogy of faith. And that states that scripture is a harmonious whole and that properly understood, it does not contradict itself. There there are apparent or seeming contradictions in God's word. Certainly there are paradoxes that may be beyond our ability to fully harmonize as much as we would like. But when we hold to a certain doctrine with confidence and believe this to be the truth of God, we can come to our Bibles without fear that it's going to be undermined by another passage of scripture. And that's the case with 
this text. All right, so the first thing that I want to address and assert is this. I'm laying out some basic theological principles, some biblical principles that we need to have and understand uh, in order to properly interpret and apply this passage of Scripture. And the first thing I want to address and assert is that the promises of God regarding the salvation which he has provided in Christ speak to a certain, full, free, and eternally settled condition. That is to say that the promises that are made concerning coming to faith in Jesus Christ and the hope and the certainty of forgiveness and new life are made without equivocation. We assert in the words of a passage like John 3.16 that whosoever believes in him, now listen, what's the, what are the words of the text that follow? What, what does it say? Will not perish, but will inherit eternal life. That is made freely, fully, in a settled way, without condition and without equivocation. And I could multiply text upon text in this regard. I, I thought about, I, didn't, I don't have it with me here, but years ago I was having a, a debate with some who deny this reality, who deny that, that there is any security that belongs to anyone who is in Christ Jesus. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. And they said, you can't make that promise. Okay, well, the Bible does. And this person challenged me. In fact, it was a whole denomination, uh, seemingly, that was challenging me. And they, they had a radio show, and they were denouncing. For some reason, they, got, they found out about me. And I, I don't want to get into all that, but it was a long time ago. But somebody challenged me. Could I produce any text in the Word of God that showed that salvation is fully, freely of grace and that it issues forth in a settled salvation? He asked for one text. I sent him 16 pages of text. <laughs> So when I say I can multiply text, I'm telling you, I can multiply text here. This is a faithful saying, dear ones, and it's worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Not potentially save them, not save them and then lose them. But he came into the world to die for them and to purchase for them a condition before God that they cannot lose. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He put it this way himself. These are the words of our Lord in John chapter 6 and verse 37. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out nobody comes to the lord jesus for salvation nobody asks the lord jesus to save them and, and has him say to them get out of here who do you think you are you're not worthy of me no i didn't die for that no it doesn't do that and then he says this, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me and this is the will of the father who sent me, that all that he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. There will be no one. The Father is given to the Son, 
and who has come to the Son, that when the last day comes and the Father, as it were, reads the log of all that he had given to the Son, that he'll say, well, where, where, where's Anna? Where, where, where's where's Daryl? Where's Charlie? And the Lord Jesus is going to say, I lost him. Is that possible of our Savior? We referenced last Lord's Day evening, I think it was, in the preaching, but recently in the preaching, the glory of some of the glories of Romans 8, which we have worked through as a congregation. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? That is, who will unjustify those whom God has justified? And his response is, no one and nothing, right? If God is the one who justifies... Now, you justify yourself, you can lose that. But if God justifies you, and if Christ died, and Christ is risen, and Christ intercedes for you at the right hand of the Father, if that is the complex of our salvation, then we assert that it is a full and free and a lasting salvation. What can separate us from the love of God? In Christ Jesus, again, the answer is nothing. I won't, I won't get into all of that. We have so much material that we need to go through this morning. Now, we also believe, and, and I'll get into this, we do believe and assert doctrines which relate to the preservation of the believer, and that's what we are focusing on here in, in what I'm saying. Peter says we are kept by the power of God unto salvation, reserved, intact in heaven for you. But we also believe in a doctrine called perseverance, and that is the truth that those for whom Christ has died and shed his blood and they have come to him and sought him for their salvation, that one of the things that will mark them is that through the the trials and tribulations of life, through the ups and downs, through occasional we're going to get into this in a few moments, backslidings and, and times when we're barely hanging on by our fingernails, that that because a true work of grace is done in them, that they will ultimately return back to the Savior who loved them. So that we assert that when God saves a sinner, that sinner is saved, and we assert that they will be held by the Lord firm until the end. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Unless you decide otherwise. Then say that. Paul is able to say, and I've alluded to this, I believe here, 2 Timothy 1 and verse 12, for I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him until that day. So again, there may be backslidings, there may be times Again, when they are held but seemingly by a thread, but if they belong to him, he will hold them, and they will hold unto him. So you see this in a passage like John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now again, you're going to see here the difference between false profession and true conversion. There are people who say, I prayed a prayer, I walked an aisle, I got baptized, and I did the whole religious thing. But this doesn't describe them. They don't hear his voice. They're not following him. 
My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, we saw that earlier in John 6, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Can the devil? No. Can the government? No. Can your parents? No. Can a spouse? No. Can a child? No. So we've seen that the salvation is, uh, uh, is full and free. Secondly, that when God saves a sinner, that sinner is saved and they will be held by the Lord firm to an end. I, I maybe didn't make it clear. That was number two. The third element of truth necessary to understand this passage is this. And if you don't understand this, then you're not going to understand this passage. There are those who profess faith and bear signs temporarily of true conversion who ultimately fall away or who are in for a shocking revelation at the gates of heaven. And so we ask, all right, well, you, Pastor, you just said what you said. Jim, you said what you said. What, 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 about, what about those thorny ground hearers or the shallow ground hearer that Jesus describes in the Gospels? So that, for instance, in Mark chapter 4, and beginning now at verse 16, Jesus has given the parable of the sower and the seeds. There are one seed, seed is the gospel, seed is the word of God, the sower is the preacher, and there are four types of soil. And Jesus is now giving his interpretation of that. And he says, these likewise, this is verse 16, are the ones sown on stony ground, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness. And they have no root in themselves, and so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the world's sake. Pause here. Watch any new young celebrity who somehow now, they, because of their singing or their music ability, gets uh, sudden uh, fame in the eyes of the world. And they grew up in church, and maybe you follow them on Twitter or Instagram or something. Oh, so-and-so's a professing Christian. They went to such and such a church. Watch how long it is. Under the scrutiny of Hollywood and the pressure of the world before they leave off that profession of faith. Tribulation arises, peer pressure arises, and they fall away. Sake of the word, tribulation arises for the word's sake, and immediately, immediately they stumble. Now, these are the ones sown among thorns, they are the ones who hear the word. Again, the idea is, like the stony ground, they receive it with joy, and the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things entering in choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. This happens in the ministry. It happens during an evangelistic call. 
Somebody hears the reality of eternal judgment. Maybe they hear a sermon about how the second coming of Christ can be at any instant. And you're going to stand before God and you're going to, going to count for your life. And there is a place called the lake of fire and sinners go there. But Jesus died so that we can have our sins forgiven and you can go to heaven. And somebody says, that's what I want. And they leave the camp or they leave the church. And within, whether it is days or weeks or months... The pressures come in, persecution comes in, begin to pay a price for your attachment to Jesus, and they fall away. And then, dear ones, we have to face square, squarely the warning of Jesus himself at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. So I've recently have taught pastoral theology in the last couple of years, taught it in Cuba, and then was recently teaching it in Brazil. One of the first things I deal with in regard to the qualifications, is that he must be a converted man. And you think, well, why am I dealing with that when I'm giving the qualifications of the pastor? Well, it's because of this passage. Jesus says at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, and he's talking there about false teachers in the context and about how you know them by their fruits, and that you, you can make... And you have to judge righteous judgment. It's not that you never make a, a discernment about anyone. But then he makes this statement, having said you know false teachers by the fruit that they bear. Even so, verse 17 of Matthew 7, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. And again, you have to understand that in the context of the rest of the scriptures. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is a profession of faith that there's nothing that comes out of it. They say they're a disciple of Jesus, but nothing really has changed in their life. Grace has not transformed them. They're not a new creature, as it were. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Not everyone, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, now, only those who say to me, Lord, Lord, will inherit the kingdom of heaven. But not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many, now this is, this is where it begins to get hard. And I stand here and I preach this and I recognize my race isn't one. I, I haven't finished my race. And I could yet bring scandal and shame and dishonor to Christ. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord. Now notice the grounds of their hope. It's ministerial. Now you may have a different thing that you would put in if it were you. But here's what they're saying. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. So this is not a loss of salvation. It's not, I used to know you. And the knowing here is this intimate, loving knowledge that the Lord has with his people. I know my sheep and I call them by name. That's the idea is, I never knew you. You professed attachment to me. But as it says in John chapter 2, there were some that Jesus did not attach himself to because he knew what was in men. And then I will declare to them, again, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You have in the Bible the record of men like Judas, who spent three years with our Lord, who taught and preached, who worked miracles, 
who had seemingly very good doctrine, yet ultimately did not know the Lord. We have the reality of men like Demas, who is described by Paul in Philemon to be a fellow worker with him, who is later said to have forsaken him. And by that you understand he has forsaken the faith, having loved this present age. To be a fellow worker, there needed to have been baptism, association with the church, a clear profession of faith, an admission into the local church, and a recognition by that church and by the apostle himself that the man had gifts. He wouldn't have gone along otherwise. And yet even a man like that, it can be said, will not ultimately, did not ultimately make it. He was useful for a time in the kingdom and yet departed because he loved the world. And John says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is, not, not, might not be in them, is not in them. Fourthly, because all of this is true, professing Christians must engage in times of self-examination. Throughout the epistles, there are various warnings about being deceived. Let no one deceive you, and don't be deceived yourself. Warnings about being deceived, the recognition that certain patterns of impenitent behavior are not in keeping with your professed hope of eternal life. Now I'm going to read a, a section that is exceedingly pertinent to this issue. But as I was looking at it afresh this morning, I realized I, want to, I, I need to, when I quote this passage, start it a little earlier. Because these issues are again connected. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 has been quoted in this place from the beginning in regard to a warning regarding self-examination. And normally we start the reading at verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And he's going to describe, I'm going to, I'm going to get to that, but I want to start earlier and, and where it starts earlier is in this matter of believer taking believer to court. Believers, you know, suing each other. That somebody wants to get their pound of flesh from somebody else in this situation. Again, there may be a circumstance situation where that may be, that it's possible that that could be justified. But it's not what's the case here. Here, that is, somebody got mad at somebody else and they were not willing to work through matters of gospel reconciliation. And so he says this, now therefore it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather, uh, sorry, yeah, why do you not rather let yourself be cheated? Or take the kind of humility we read about in James 4. No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat and you do these things to your brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous... So that what might be regarded as a bit of a lesser sin, because they can talk here about drunkenness and homosexuality and all of that. But a root of bitterness and hatred towards your brethren puts you in the same category, that's what I'm saying, as these so-called scandalous sins that the evangelical church does a great job of calling out. But do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be, here again, do not be deceived. Be deceived about yourself. Don't be deceived about others. Neither fornicators, 
nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of heaven. No matter what the modern evangelical church says about some of these sins and wanting them now to be included as tolerable and even celebrated in the church. Because what does grace do? Grace changes you. We've said it before, I say it again. If God has done something for you in the cross, he has also done something in you by his grace and by his spirit. For such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, set apart, and you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. And so we offer great hope to people who are, whether it is a fornicator or a drunkard or an extortioner or a reviler or a homosexual or a sodomite or an adulterer because our own congregation is made up of such. And Jesus received us and loved us and poured out his lifeblood so that we could be forgiven and justified. The epistle of 1 John, John tells us in John chapter 5, is largely written to help believers, to help professing believers, I should say, in the matter of having a certain ground of their assurance. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you might know that you have eternal life. I I want to help you in this. And so he gives three essential tasks, right? There's a moral test. Are you walking in the light or in darkness? That is, are you fighting your sin, putting your sin to death? He says, I write these things in chapter 2 so that you might not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins. And so there is a desire, a new desire, born of the Spirit and born of a new work, that we desire not to sin, but bless God when we do sin. We have an advocate with the Father. The second is a doctrinal test. What do you believe about Jesus? Do you deny that Jesus has come in the flesh? Do you deny either the essential humanity or the essential deity of Christ? You cannot do that and and profess faith. But the third thing is the relational test. Do you love the brethren? Do you 1 Corinthians 13 love your brethren? Do you love your brethren the way the Bible says that you love your brethren? And where there is a failure in one category. If you walk in darkness, John says, it's not in you. If you deny the essential truths of the personal work of Christ, you're not a Christian. And if you don't love the brethren, and and I'm talking about even like like in here. I mean, like, listen, if, if we can't love People outside of our fellowship, you know, we can't let people in our fellowship. We expect to really love them outside our fellowship. And if you don't love the brethren, you have no right, you have no no expectation other than the Lord Jesus is going to say to you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Because love is the fulfillment of the law. And to be without love is to, is to be the, the epitome of antinomianism, even if you are morally, quote unquote, upright. This is written to churches. So I'm, I'm, I'm saying here that you can say, listen, 
All that the Father gives to the Son will come to him, and none of them will be cast out. Though you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall not perish and have eternal life. But you also have to recognize the same Bible that teaches that, teaches that there are some people who said, I have that, I want that, who prove that it wasn't really theirs. And therefore, because that has happened, and it can happen, and because there will be many who will hear our Lord say, I never knew you, therefore we ought to engage in self-examination. This is written to churches, solid churches, doctrinal churches. They're written to churches who believe that Jesus paid it all, that our salvation rests on him, that is, they were gospel-preaching churches, to churches where the gospel was preached, and again, that all that the Father has given to the Son uh, will never be cast away. So what do we do with such? Well, again, we need to embrace attention. Attention that gives comfort, but also at times issues a challenge. That edifies in hopes, but that also where necessary confronts. That gives assurance to the weary and to the, the heavy laden that is rooted in the promises of Christ but that recognizes that a grace that saves is also a grace that transforms. And so I want to put it this way, profession does not always equal possession. We need to understand that. Orthodoxy, gifts, and usefulness are not the ultimate grounds of our assurance. And that is why, fifthly, there are numerous warnings and exhortations to make our calling and election sure. So don't be, don't be undone when, as you're reading along, and there's all this promise, 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 that all of a sudden he goes, oh, wait, hang on. I want you to listen to me. When I use the language, make our calling and our election sure, you, you may know that that is taken from Second Peter. And it is, again, a text that I think should be read in its greater context, both before and after. Uh, the text comes from Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. That is to say that there are some who are enabled by God's grace and by the actions of the Holy Spirit and by the determination of a renewed will to walk with a great sense of assurance. Listen, so I'm saying, look, if, if, if you're not le le leading a, a secret life, and you are what you appear to be, and then it's, you know, I'm a Christian, I have, my, I have my ups and downs, but listen, I want to follow Jesus, I want to obey Jesus, I love God's people, I love him. Listen, you ought, you ought to walk. This isn't talking about you. But we have found through the years that people can sit here very nicely in a nice confessional Reformed Baptist church and have a secret life. And so Peter gives a great assurance, these things are yours. Well, what are the these things? You see, it's helpful to hear that text in the broader context which deals with the issue of false security that attends some professions of faith, especially from those that arise from a context, a modern context of what we call easy believism or decisionism that gives great assurance where there is little fruit. 
And there are going to be some preachers who will have blood on their hands at the last day because they never confronted, they never challenged people who were living lives that are contrary to an experience of the grace of God. Now that can be true of all of us at any point in our lives. When you, when you are full of anger and hate somebody, you are living contrary to the work of the grace of God. When, when your heart is carried away for a time with some lust, you are living contrary to somebody purified with the, the lovely work of the Spirit of God. But what do you do? You repent. You acknowledge it. You repent. You seek the blood of Christ for that. So when, Jane, when Peter makes a comment about be diligent to make your calling election sure, he's referring to what he says earlier on beginning at verse 5 of chapter 1. But also for this reason. Well, what, what reason? Why, why do you labor at the growth of your faith? Well, because it's what he says in, in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. His divine power has given us all things that, are, that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called you by glory and virtue. Now, because that's true, therefore, from that love, from that grace, you labor, giving all diligence. And again, brethren, not all passivity. Passive Christians don't grow. Giving all diligence. Well, I didn't know growing was going to be hard. Growing's not hard for a baby. But when you get to be a certain age and you want to get stronger, it's going to require some diligence. Giving all diligence. Add to your faith virtue. To virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things, that is your Christianity isn't producing much of this kind of life. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. That is, kind of forgetting grace. You think of the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 wherein he relates the history of the people of Israel. A privileged people, if there ever were some, delivered with the mighty hand of God, walked through the Red Sea, ate the manna upon the ground, had the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, and yet they committed gross sin and they suffered the wrath of God. And Paul says, when you read that, you need to be warned by it. Because you think, well, I'm privileged. I've had great experience. And yet some of them were doing some pretty awful sinning. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in, and in one day, 23,000 fell. This is 1 Corinthians 10 verse 8. Nor let us tempt Christ. as Some of them also tempted. A child of God, professing child of God, member of this congregation. Are you tempting Christ? By refusing to put to death some sin? Yeah, he's very gracious. His mercy and patience are, are, are great. But brethren, let's not use that as a ground to tempt him. Some of them tempted and they were destroyed by serpent, nor complain. Complaints always justified, right? It's always godly. No, it's not. 
God destroyed complainers just like he destroyed sexually immoral. Destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Now again, he's talking about somebody who has made an arrogant application of the truth of God's grace. And that brings us sixthly and finally to assert that the mark of true saving faith is in its perseverance. As we said last week, it's not where we started and it's not really where we were. It's where we are. And so there are some, sadly, who have made great, had great knowledge and had gifts and whatever the case might be. And you say, but I look at them now and they're, they're bitter and unforgiving and living a life that's not full and robust. And you go, yeah, but they were. Okay, I know it's what they were. Somebody else says, I, I was backslidden, but I'm not now. Praise God. Did the Lord restore you? That's one of the great signs and symbols that this one really is a child of God. Because true believers can do some pretty awful things. Read your New Testament. Read your Old Testament. And it's possible even for a time, a period of time. Jim, what is that period of time? I don't know. But I do know it's only a period of time. And the shepherd of the sheep will leave the 99 and pursue the one who is straying. And he will put them upon his shoulders and bring them back rejoicing. Because that's what he does. Because that's what shepherds do. Did the Lord restore you? Did he chasten you? No, he didn't. I'm under the cloak. He does not dealing with me. His hand is not heavy on me. See, David, so I can be like David, right? Well, da yeah, David sinned. Yes, he did. And you know what happened? The Lord's hand was heavy on him. And he found no comfort and no relief until he repented. And when he did repent, well, how blessed is he whose sins are forgiven. It didn't mean that he couldn't have rejoice in the fountain open for sin and uncleanness. Yeah, he'd abused it. But again, that fountain is what that fountain is, and it does what the fountain does. But if he doesn't chasten you, and he doesn't chase you, and he doesn't deal with you, and you're allowed to wallow in your sin, though you once made a profession, you have every reason to doubt your sonship. And so we want to state at the outset and laying the foundation for this passage, <clears throat> we are not talking about, <clears throat> I want to make this clear, this passage is not a passage about losing our salvation. We're not talking about somebody who was justified in January and then condemned in February. But we are saying that there are those who give every appearance of new life in Christ. And brethren, the language here is strong. Tasted these things. We're going to get into that. God willing, next week. And it's meant to be powerful for us. Because it's, he says, look, there's some who walked an aisle and made a little happy little clappy profession of faith in a, in a shallow church. And some of them have, have fallen away. It's not what he's saying. There are people who sat under the ministry of apostles. There was a man who for three years sat under the ministry of Jesus. 
And they tasted and they experienced heavenly things. And they fell away. They made a good confession. Some alteration of life, some possession of gifts and abilities and usefulness. And they will yet prove unconverted. Listen, prove unconverted. Not lost their conversion. And how do you know? Well, sometimes it's made known morally. They abandon faith and a good conscience to walk after the things of this world to suffer that kind of shipwreck. Sometimes it's doctrinal. They deny the essential elements of the faith. Sometimes it's relational. They don't love the people of God. If, they don't love, if you don't love the people of God, I have no confidence you've ever experienced God's grace. If you're unforgiving, you, Jesus said, listen, God doesn't hear your prayers. Well, how does that square? Listen, I'm t- look, we're going to get into this ne- more next time. There's a reason warnings are given. Warnings are given to, to make you stop doing a certain thing. Well, I don't understand how this squares. With, well, just take him at his word and say, if you're, if you're not forgiving somebody, he's not going to hear you and you're not going to go to heaven. Yeah, but I, listen, I don't know how to square it all. Well, I'm telling you, he's telling you, what's he, he's telling you so you'll stop living that way. Don't be deceived. Well, I'm a fornicator. I'm trusting. In the, well, don't, don't deceive yourself. He just said to you, the immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived by it. Yeah, but people like that get saved. I know they do. But he's telling you to stop doing it. It's not hard. This really isn't rocket science. When you get down to it, what's the point of a, what point of a warning is? So that you'll not get into a horrible place and then try to reason yourself out of it. Don't go there. And if you're in there, flee from there. That's the idea. So sometimes it's made known morally, sometimes doctrinally, sometimes relationally, sometimes by simply turning back by a rejection of the truth and especially by detaching oneself from Jesus. Now this does not mean, I'm almost done, that you cannot enjoy a good assurance. We read from our confession of faith, chapter 18 on assurance. Our our confession, if you're visiting here, is the uh, Second London Confession, what's called the 1689. It says this, Although temporary believers and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in the favor of God and a state of salvation, which hope of theirs shall perish, yet such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in a state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The fact that some are falling away doesn't mean you can't have assurance. But it does mean don't be arrogant and presumptuous. The the paragraphs that follow in the confession show that this confidence is rooted in promise, and that, that though not all believers enjoy a full sense of it in this life, there are, believer, there are believers who have possession without enjoyment of that possession. Okay? They're really saved. The Lord loves them, but they never get to enjoy it in this life. Thank the Lord they'll have an eternity in which this life will be a tiny little forgotten dot uh, where they didn't enjoy it. But what does he say? Well, look to Christ, love the Lord, try to walk with a good conscience. Not that hard. I'm clinging to what, what, 
How can I sing blessed assurance Jesus is mine? Where's your hope, folks? Well, it's in that I... No, it's in Christ. I believe him. I trust him. And I believe he's done a work in me. I have a desire to know him and love him and please him. That's the mark of a child. That's the work of, that's the work of grace. It even, but even, brethren, where we have such possession and can have such hope, we still need to listen to the warnings. The Apostle Paul said to the Corinthian church, examine yourselves to see whether or not you're in the faith. Test yourself. Do you not know yourself that Jesus Christ is in you unless you are disqualified? And the word translated as disqualified is translated elsewhere as reprobate. And Paul uses that of himself. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 27, this is a man who knew grace and who knew great assurance. But he said, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. Lest when I preach to others, I myself should prove an apostate, should be disqualified. There are things I know that if I pursued and I went after and I lived the way that some little sin in my heart wants to pull me toward. I say, look, if I go there, if I go there, having preached to others, having studied God's word for 40 some years and preached for over 40 years. If I do all that and I, at the latter part of my life, go pursue and chase something that raises huge question mark. Look, I have to recognize I, grace, grace is to be treasured, but not trifled with. It should make you bold in your life, but not bold in your sin. God's, Paul, Paul's understanding of grace freed him to labor more abundantly. Because he knew how sinful he was. He, he knew the judgment he deserved. And he knew Jesus loved him and accepted him. And that compelled him to watch his life and to watch his doctrine. So that as one has well said, there is all the difference in the world between laboring to be accepted and laboring because you are accepted. And so we walk as we walk in the days ahead in this passage. Let us remember not only what grace is, but what grace does. And let us be mindful of patterns of life contrary to our confession. Sins that we have ignored or excused. Sins unchallenged or unconfessed. And brethren, rather than saying to yourself, well, then I must not be a true Christian. No, fly to the fountain open for sin and uncleanness. And if you've never really come, come now. And if you fear you've been deceived, go to him now and hope in his mercy. Far better that the Savior of sinners should have you say, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. And if I've never experienced that mercy in the past, may I experience it now. He'll not be offended by such hope, by such faith, by such trust. This is what all the warnings are going to lead us to. It's going to lead us to the one who is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on these things. Our Father in heaven, thank you that we can spend these moments before your word and ask, Heavenly Father, that you would aid us in holding to these tensions revealed in the scriptures. Father, may we honor your work of grace, and Lord, may we fear the risings of those sins that would so overcome us and draw us back to the world and away from our Savior. We pray these things in his name. Amen.